you need to have this abstract factory command bus that's taking in a repository bean factory and everything everything's mock wait did you say repository bean factory <laughs> yeah <laughs> everything got a little java what in there kind of app is this Welcome back to another episode of the Laravel Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Starfer. I got two guys with me. Can you introduce yourselves? I am Jeffrey Way. And I'm Taylor Otwell. I still want a soundboard. I say this almost every week. I want to be able... I feel like there's appropriate <laughs> really moments funny. where I want to like have a boom or something. So if any of you listeners, if you're familiar with like a Skype-friendly soundboard, I would really, really appreciate it if you would sit, put, uh, leave that as a comment on this episode because I want it so badly. Like I just feel like each of them deserves some kind of massive boom or something. So, all right. So things have been happening. Um, there's a lot of the what we're going to be talking about this week is actually focused on things that I'm super excited about and I'm, I'm driving a little bit. So I'm going to be asking and prompting a lot about, um, for starters, we're going to be talking about acceptance testing. And so for anyone who's not familiar um, there's a lot of different words that people use to talk about testing and there's unit testing, which is pretty universally accepted as the smallest piece, the smallest unit you test it. There's usually functional or not functional integration testing, which is taking multiple units together and testing how they work. And then, and then once you go past there, that's when the words get confusing. So some people will talk about uh, functional testing. A lot of Laravel's docs call it functional testing. A lot of people also call it acceptance testing and then there's also you get in the idea of regression testing but usually in general what we're talking about here is when you get past the individual piece when you talk about the functionality of the entire system and the way that the end user would accept that it's functioning or not you know those are kind of the concepts we're, we're working with there so when we talk about acceptance tests here we're really talking about clicking around on your site or checking out your api or something something at the very high level not individual gritty pieces but the high level so the first thing I wanted to talk about and just hear y'all's thoughts about is when we were at ZenCon, um, I saw Adam Wyland give a talk about testing and he did something that I had never seen before, which is I'm sure plenty of other people have seen and this is old hat, but for me it was really new, which is using TDD, but using it for acceptance tests instead of using it for unit tests. And so when you think about TDD from the unit test perspective, you think of you have your individual unit, you write a test that describes what you want that unit to do, that little small thing to do, you know, single method kind of thing. It's it's red, you write the code, it's green, you move on. But this whole thing with the acceptance test-driven development, it's more like you post this particular value to that page or you go to that page or something at the very high level that doesn't actually function at the moment. And then you go and write it at the application level. And And that was really attractive to me as someone who... Uh, in my day job, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for unit testing. But in my side projects, which is where I get to have the most fun and try the most new things, I, I almost never am writing anything that merits a unit test. It's lots of, you know, crud pages and APIs and all that kind of stuff. And so I got super excited about the idea of writing acceptance tests as a part of my development process and the things that Laravel kind of opens up for me there. So before we talk about this for at least half the episode, I just wanted to see... Um, one of the things I'd like to hear is a little bit of the history of it, because Jeffrey, I think if I'm remembering correctly, a lot of the functionality of acceptance tests in Laravel comes from integrated. Is that right? Could you talk a little bit about kind of where that came from and when it got merged in and everything? 
Yeah, sure. Well, first, on the, the terminology aspect, yeah, it, it's kind of insane. I've said that for years. Uh, my best advice for people getting into this is don't worry about it too much. Like you said, acceptance testing or, or functional testing or uh, I think as Taylor sort of coined application testing, they're all kind of the same thing depending upon uh, the community you're in. People treat them a little different. So like a functional test would sort of be like outside in but more from the developer's point of view. So, like, you could theoretically have a situation where your functional tests are pass passing, but your acceptance tests are failing because the acceptance tests are sort of, well, they only pass if the client or the customer says, yep, that's how I expected it to work. So you could write functional tests for yourself, but then your acceptance tests, you know what? It sucks. It's stupid. Don't even think about it. Just think outside <laughs> in or, or you know, that's really how I think of it. Or even further, like an integration test, well... Acceptance testing is a form of integration testing, so you can really get into it and try to figure out the differences, but it just doesn't matter, right? It's, it's really stupid. So um, Laravel's application testing, a lot of it was was ported. Uh, a lot of the API was ported over from the integrated package I made. And mostly that's just, that, that was an attempt to make some of this a little more bearable. You know, we... The testing evangelists always talk about more people need to be testing, and, and we don't understand why they're not doing it. They're not doing it because it's really complicated, and it's really confusing, and you don't know where to test, and people throw all of these rules on you to make you feel like if you if you step out of line at any part of the process, then you, you've completely failed, and you shouldn't even be testing, right? And the reality is, like, no... It's not. Do your best. You know, you're going to keep getting better. Uh, if you uh, integration test something that should be unit tested, who cares? You know, like you'll you'll tweak it next time. You know, it just doesn't matter that much at the end of the day, despite what tons of people would say. Um, yeah. So with uh, Laravel 5.1's application testing, you can do stuff from the outside in. So let's say um, when you click on some button on your site, you want to favor it to blog post, right? You could, like you said, Matt, you could TDD that from the outside in. So you could say like, okay, uh, let's say I visit this page. So you would have a visit method. And then you say, well, when I click on this heart icon that has this ID, well, then I expect to see uh, a record within some pivot table in the database. And then you can write a method called C in database. So it's about the most natural thing you can do, and it's outside in, so it kind of fits your brain a little bit more. Unit testing is great, uh, especially for, like, if you want to make sure that every single time you you trigger this action, some kind of command gets sent, like some kind of tell, tell so-and-so to do this. You know, if you want to make sure that happens, that's where unit testing is really great. But it definitely can be hard to get your mind around uh, when you're first getting into this stuff. So that's why I always say outside in is a good first step because it's it's exactly what you would do normally. You know, everybody, I always say this, everyone's already testing. You're just opening up the browser, filling out the form and making sure it works. So I would think the natural next step is how can you automate that in a way that's actually pretty enjoyable? And then you can slowly dig further and further in um, if it fits your application. Uh, so one of the things we talk about here is, um, and that's that. thanks for that. That's really helpful. Um, and we talk about TDD is not just testing, right? It's also design. Like it's a way of thinking about things. And one of the things that I found is I was learning to write acceptance tests as the the foundation of my application is that sometimes it changed my way of thinking of how I was going to approach things. And one of the things I've noticed is that it started shifting some of my thinking. And, and, and this is going in the line of the direction of some of the criticisms of acceptance test is uh, often when people think about an acceptance test, they say, well, it's not valuable because you're just clicking to make sure certain words are there. But then later, if you change the words on that button or change the words you're looking for, the star to, to, to a different ID or something like that, it's going to fall apart. 
And that's how I thought about it originally. But as I was thinking about it, I I started realizing, well, with acceptance tests, that is sometimes a part of it. But sometimes what you're really checking is to make sure that browser level interactions are going successfully. And I started writing a test that said something like, I want to make sure you can't submit two of this that have the duplicate number, right? And so my first test was submit, make two post calls. And the second one should get some kind of error on the page. And then I was getting all these redirects and all this kind of stuff. And I, it, it kind of changed my way of thinking to saying, well, I could just submit two of them and make sure there's only one in the database afterwards. And so I think all of this is all these pieces of it's not just, uh, I don't know how to say this. It's, it's, I think it's the whole opening up of application testing. Uh, thinking with application testing helps me because it's, you're actually testing the state of your application at any given moment versus just testing. It's not HTTP testing. It's not page source testing it's testing the entirety and making sure that interactions with one piece have the the desired relationship and functionality and behavior on some other pieces and what's great about it is once you broke it down and figured out the natural way it makes perfect sense and that, yeah. i find that a lot like when you when you finally step away from whatever rules you're supposed to be following and you just think in a perfect world what would i do to make sure this works okay well if i submit two post requests then then I'm not sure how it goes with you, but one should fail or something like that. Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. Um, And that's where it also becomes very useful. Like, we're having more and more JavaScript in our applications. So what if you're trying to write an application test, but there may be um, some JavaScript hydrax and anchor tag and submits an Ajax request or something? Well, how do you test that? Well, at that point, you can... um, you can go around the HTTP layer. I'm sorry, you go around the actual browser layer and you just say, okay, well, if this is supposed to submit a delete request... Well, once again, there's a delete method with Laravel. So you just say this delete, you submit through whatever data is responsible. And then how would you verify that that works? Maybe make sure it doesn't exist in the database. You know, it's pretty natural stuff when you get down to it. And it makes it a lot more enjoyable in my mind. So Taylor, you did a couple quick starts uh, recently. Uh, They were task manager and they were trying to help people who are writing Laravel apps for the first time kind of see A to Z what that process looks like. Could you talk a little bit about what writing tests for those look like? Yeah, it basically looked exactly like what we're talking about, where it's a simple task list. And if you fill out this text box and hit uh, submit, you know, your task shows up in the task list down below. So we basically just, you know, went to the test and said, type this text and this button, click the submit button and make sure that the text is on the page. And then I did some other acceptance tests for like, um, one logged in user shouldn't be able to view task v- created by another logged in user. So kind of a multi-tenant type thing. So uh, made sure that worked and then made sure that users couldn't delete other users tasks. And all of those were basically using the um, basically the integrated helpers that were that were brought into Laravel where I can just click buttons and fill in text boxes and things like that. But it was actually really interesting because after I released those tests, um, one person on Twitter said, why didn't you like inject a repository to pull your task and, and mock that basically? And I think that revealed like something I see a lot where people are using their test tool and, and not really testing anything. Like at the end of the day, like they're just mocking everything and then re-implementing their entire controller in the test so that if one line of the controller changes, they have to change their test. And that's really like the goal of testing is to be able to like refactor your code and ideally your test would still pass. Right. But if you kind of go mock crazy like that, where you're, you're mocking everything and injecting everything, that's not really going to test anything. That's just testing that you didn't make any typing mistakes in your implementation. Basically, it's not actually testing that anything really works. Um, so 
that's why I just did uh, the acceptance testing. I didn't do any unit testing on that because it was just CRUD database interaction, and there were, it would be absolutely pointless to mock or, or stub anything. And that's where it makes sense. Like, write the tests, if any, if it makes sense for the application. Uh, I think sometimes it's it's detrimental to just act like everything needs tests. Like, it depends on what you're building, right? There, there are some things we build, whether they're like little command line utilities or, or small uh, toy projects, they just don't benefit from them that much. You're not going to change the code that much. You know, those things where you build them over a weekend, you push them up, and they do what they need, and you'll rarely go back to it. You just don't need to worry about it that much. Unless you really enjoy it, it doesn't matter. Um, for other things, it does matter, you know? So so these things all depend upon uh, what you're building. And it, it comes down, I always say this, like, make up your own mind. Uh, if you think the code would benefit from from doing it in this way, then then definitely write the test. But if not, then then we're all adults here and you can make up your own mind there. I've, uh, I've got two of those kind of side project toy apps that I've always traditionally said, you know what, push those apps out, validate them before you worry about writing the tests. And both of them, I'm going back and doing them with an acceptance test-driven development kind of mindset. Um, one of them is Confomo, which I'm writing from scratch. And one of them is Pulled Over, which is a Twilio-based app. We'll talk about that in a minute, um, which I'm... I, I'm only a little bit in, so I kind of started from scratch uh, with doing it this way. And it's kind of weird to be writing a test on something where normally I could spit something out in the weekend, and instead I'm doing a... And I will admit, as especially as I'm learning this way of thinking, it's a much slower way of doing it. But I found that the slowness is not writing the tests, but it's changing my way of thinking to understand how to approach it in such a way that uh, it's testable. And we've all kind of had these changes in at the unit level. We're learning about dependency injection, all kind of stuff. You start writing your code in a more testable way. But it's very interesting to think about writing your application in a more testable way. And of course, there's some ways in which that's a bad idea. But one of the things that I've noticed is that um, it helps me uh, think through having a cleaner, I guess, like if you want to call it the API of what posts are accepted where and everything like that, and making sure the post versus patch and versus delete are all really well thought out. But one of the things that I noticed is that this acceptance testing is much easier on API-driven applications than on API-driven applications because just basically sending a post somewhere and then doing some see JSON, you know, assert that you see some JSON in a response somewhere, and then that's it. Like, there's nothing fragile about that at all unless you change the actual, res- you know, sh- shape of your response. Uh, it's really easy. Like, I, I, I've never seen acceptance testing make more sense than an API, API-driven application. So we got a couple more things to talk about, but what's this? What's this next next item on the list, guys? What are we on? Are we on PHP unit as spell checker or facade? Yeah, debate? Well, it's, no, the PHP unit as spell checker. Yeah, that was I kind of touched on that, but that was a common mistake I see in PHP where people are people. A lot of people think they're writing a lot of good tests, and they're not actually testing anything. I swear, I see this like on ninety percent of the tests I see where they have some object and they've read some articles by PHP thought leaders that say. You need to have this abstract factory command bus that's taking in a repository bean factory, and everything everything's mocked. Wait, did you say repository bean factory? <laughs> yeah, everything. <laughs> Got a little job in there. Kind of app is this? <laughs> everything's mocked, and like their whole test is like ten lines of this should receive this and return that. This should receive this yeah. and return that, and they have and just recreated the entire implementation in their PHP unit tests. And that's stupid. Like that doesn't test anything. And that's all that is doing is using PHP unit as a spell checker in the sense that you're just making Hmm. sure that you didn't misspell any method names or property names in your code. That's all you're doing is just making sure everything's typed exactly correctly, but it doesn't actually verify 
that anything actually works in any kind of valuable way. Um, and I see that a lot with people that are sort of like being influenced by architecture astronauts a lot and are getting into testing and they're really over mocking and, um, over abstracting everything is they, they're using their test tool as a spell checker when, and then it's kind of sad because like, you know, a lot of those people kind of deride the acceptance test of hitting the database and checking that stuff works. But like, that's actually testing that something works. That's testing yeah. something real. Mocking everything and, and re-implementing everything in your test is not testing anything. You know, it's one of those things. It, it comes down once again. You have people for for whatever reason they just join different factions. So you have the one group that's like, no, everything is unit tested. Even your controllers, you need to unit test because that way you're driving design, and then that way your code will magically turn out better. And then you have the other group where it's like, no, it doesn't make sense. You should use collaborators here. It doesn't matter if it's slower because you're testing more things, and and that makes more sense. You know, it's like once again, everyone just kind of picks the side that they're going to go on to. Um, to Taylor's point, though, about PHP unit being a spell checker, the most obvious example of this, I've seen this many, many times, is when somebody is trying to test Eloquent. So they have something, and, and by the way, don't even try to unit test Eloquent. It's just weird. Please hit the database. Please, for the love of God, <laughs> hit the database. But what they'll do is they're like, okay, this post model should, uh, or this post class should receive a call to this static method, which is weird, and then that should receive a call to a where method, where you pass in these arguments, and then a call to take, and they just keep mocking it out to assert that you call a take method and then a select method. This is incredibly bad, and it's exactly what we mean when we say PHP unit as a spell checker, because when you break it down, all you're doing is just making sure that you write that exact bit of code within your controller or wherever you consume that code. And then if it changes and actually uh, the eloquent call needs to use a different method, your tests break, you have to go back to the test, and now your test is reproducing the change that you made in production. It's stupid. It makes no sense. So once again, the solution is uh, just hit the database. And if you break it down to what is the most natural thing I could do to make this work, even if I wasn't writing a test, in real life, what would I do to make this work? Okay, well, I would, I would trigger the query like with PHP Artisan Tinker, and then I would switch over to SQL Pro and just make sure that whatever shows up in the database does. Next step is how can I automate that? Laravel 5.1 makes that really easy, and um, that's fine, right? Uh, we don't have to complicate things so much unless they warrant it, and most of the times uh, they don't. That's a, And that's a great... Uh, I was kind of using that same mindset as I was going through pulled over. So pulled over is basically taking certain phone calls, sending out certain text messages in response, and then saving certain things to the database. And so I'm testing that locally. So you you know, you got to have to worry about using ngrok to basically set up a version of your locally hosted site that's available externally so that Twilio can be making webhooks against it. And then I got to make sure my integration tests can test to make sure that the text is being sent so it's not sending all this kind of stuff. And so I was, I was kind of having the same situation of like there's all of this very complicated stuff that requires me to actually like to make sure something ran correctly. I have to pick up my phone copy your URL, paste it somewhere else, and it just was feeling really off. So, But I was like, basically, I ran through a functioning version of the app that I'd spun up really quickly and said, what are the actual steps that I, as a person, am taking? I am checking my phone to make sure a text has been sent to it with this variable. I'm visiting that value and making sure that after that value is visited, I see a certain thing on the screen, and then I have a certain result that has changed the database. And I basically just wrote those all out. And in a process of wanting to make sure that my Twilio calls were working, I extracted a Twilio client that I tested really heavily using Twilio's test credentials to make sure it actually was doing the right thing. Um, but then everything else, I'm just mocking the Twilio client and passing it around and making sure it gets the right simple calls. And then my acceptance tests for that now basically say, 
when I go to this page, enter this information, the Twilio client should get a call that says, send this test message, then grab the URL out of that, visit the URL, and it actually visits the URL, and then make sure that after visiting the URL, the database has changed. And so the process that I was previously doing manually every time I tested it, I just wrote that down in an integration test, and now I have that test happening. And that's that's kind of the value, no matter what kind of testing it is. Of And I think I've talked about this before, of the best way to understand how to start testing and where to test is, what are the things that you're manually testing yourself anyway every single time? What page do you click to every single time? What process do you go through? What database record do you check every single time to make sure this function you're writing is working? And write a test that actually checks that for you. And that's why it's really just an automated version of the stuff you're doing already. And so usually what people uh, will complain about is they say, yeah, that's great, but you're using that word testing, and, and it's not about testing. It's really about driving design. And, and then, once again, you have another faction there. I'm not convinced that's the case. The, the whole argument, like when, when you do TDD or when you write tests first, you're driving design, so everything turns out better. Um, I've tried it a lot. I'm not convinced that's the case. Uh, I, I, like we've said, I've seen lots of test-driven code that doesn't look good. I've seen... I don't know. Here's the benefit, I think. When you when you do TDD or some form of TDD, the huge benefit is it makes you think first. Uh, I think we all have the ability to get excited and you just dive in immediately. You create the controller method, you start going, uh, and you don't just stop and think about how you want it to work. And so if you write the test first, it's almost the equivalent to just opening up a new file and thinking, how do I want this API to feel, right? Uh, I think that's your huge benefit when it comes to design, and you can just open up a file and do that just the same. I don't know. I could change my mind, but I think that's the huge benefit right now. Um, if you want to do it in a test-driven way, great. Um, if you just want to open up a new file and play with the API there and then write tests uh, once you, you've kind of figured it out, then I think that's okay, too. I'm not the type to, to judge anyone for, for what fits best for them. Like Taylor once said, I, I, and I totally agree, it's kind of per, a personality thing maybe, uh, how your brain works. You know, we're all different. Some people are a little more math-oriented or a little more English-oriented. You know, people just a, approach things a little bit differently. And uh, so if, if this fits better for somebody and not for somebody else, then who cares, right? Why are we shaming people for this? Yeah, to me, to me the, well, two things. The It makes your design better thing. I think it might make your design better for the types of tests that you like to write. Like if you like to write extremely mocked out tests that are pretty brittle, it's going to drive your design that way. And you might think your design is better because like, oh, look, I was able to write these nice mock tests, but your design is actually a lot crappier and your tests suck anyway and everything's useless. But I think people just... They have it in their head that their tests have to be certain ways, so their tests can never touch the database, and their tests have to use lots of mocks and can never do anything real and stuff like that. I see that a lot. And then secondly, like does this over or architecture astronaut over architecting design stuff is kind of like the uh, preppers of the database world. Like, so they've built this sort of like underground layer in this school bus for the zombie apocalypse, but it's like. M. Night Shyamalan plot twist the apocalypse was actually the earth opening up and now the whole earth is like lava and your school bus melted and the actual people that survived were like in airplanes or something like you can't you can't prep like for the kinds of things you think you're prepping for because like in my experience the apps you build like the things that hurt your design are just weird business stuff that you could have never prepped for like you could have never anticipated um, certain things about the business uh, you could never have designed it in such a way that you could have met that that change uh, like extremely easily. 
I don't know. That felt like a big rant, but. No, I, that is sort of like an offensive thing where people are like, if you had just done it this way, then you wouldn't be in this situation where you're rewriting some of your app. And it's maybe they're just way above me and they're seeing that th- this from a different perspective. But for me, it's like, what are you talking about? You have no clue what's going to happen in five years. So this idea that you're prepping for five years from now makes no sense because I don't even know what's happening three months from now with my exactly. Product. And like, uh, for example, let's just call out a name. Co- Code Rabbi has has lambasted Basecamp for rewriting three times, and like basically, I think insinuating that if they had written it right the first time, they would have um, not had to do that. But why did Basecamp write Basecamp three? For example, their main thing is they brought everything together, right? So like, Campfire is in Basecamp now. Um, a lot of their other like services and apps are like integrated into one place into Basecamp. That's like a business decision of saying, hey, we have all these apps and it kind of sucks to use all these apps separately. Like we're always going to our to-do list and then to our Slack chat and then to our Trello board, blah, blah, blah. What if we integrated those into one product? So that's like a business decision that they probably couldn't have anticipated five years ago that they would want to put everything in one app and that would be their base camp three. Like they could have never done any kind of abstracted design to make that happen. Yeah, I think the I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody was recently talking about how basically the idea that you are capable of predicting, you know, at the beginning of an application, what's going to happen. They said all sorts of really smart things about it. But basically, in the end, it was you can't do it. And and, it, and if you're trying to do it, you're really just predicting. You know what? I'm going to find it. I'm going to link it. But one thing worth noting is the Constantine Everzet. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, his talk at Laracon EU talked about this a lot about uh, everybody is going to try and prepare for what's coming in the future and nobody's psychic. You don't know what's coming. So really all you're doing is just basically creating more cruft that's going to make it more difficult for you to change when things actually do change. So what's more important is reducing the cost of change uh, versus, you know, planning for something that you're incapable of planning for. And I've 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 found that to be true, very true from personal experience. I can definitely vouch for that. Which leads me to kind of want to write a code minimalism in a kind of way. Like the least, the less lines of code that I can do something in, the better. A lot of times because it's just less code for me to change when the business changes. So I like to kind of travel light, so to speak, and not try to over architect. You know, twenty or thirty classes when I could just write a few simple classes that maybe are a little more coupled, but they're just simpler and more straightforward. And it'd be easier to change in the long run. Yeah, because like in the Basecamp example, this isn't a situation where if they had just created uh, an XY hydrator uh, factory, that everything would have been fine (laughs) and they wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah, now we can just drop in Campfire. We can just, quote, drop it in because we wrote this XY chat abstractor. Like they would have never done that. Exactly. So since we're riled up, let's <laughs> let's move on to something that's going to rile us even more. So a, a lot of the times when I hear and I talk to people about the minimizing the cost of change and making flexible applications, uh, and we're talking about Laravel, the, the first thing that comes up is facades. There's facades sprinkling it all around the application, and they're impossible to change the backing of and all this kind of stuff. And, and, I've, and I've seen people who have used facades poorly, and that actually is a real justification, but they also used everything else poorly. And so, like, using facades poorly was just one of the many things that were done poorly. And, it, and like any tool, it can be used poorly. We've actually had some really interesting conversations recently about facades and maybe an evolution of thinking about the whole, is a facade really a facade versus whatever else thing? Taylor, I wanted to give you a chance to just talk about what has your thinking been lately about facades? I love facades. I've always loved facades. I love the global helper functions. I love all that stuff. But really, um, I, I brought it up recently because the other day on Reddit, there was a um, 
a thread where someone recommended you should never use view make or redirect to. And to me, out of all the facades, those are the ones you should always use um, it, or just use the helper functions because you're never going to mock a view make. You're never going to mock a redirect to. Those are always going to be acceptance tests like we were talking about earlier. Assert that this HTTP response code was received. Assert that this is actually in the view, really, in the view file. Um, so not using the facades, you're, you're gaining nothing. You have no benefit from not using the facades there other than I guess there maybe if you want to try to make your whole application to where you can just quote, I love this word, drop it in another framework <laughs> like um, Zen framework or something, I guess you could extract out everything. But to me, it would be worth it just to just to change those if I ever had to do that. But since you're always acceptance testing those kinds of things, like it makes no sense not to just embrace the facade, love the facade, talk sweet to the facade, like enjoy its <laughs> presence because to mock them is going to be stupid. A lot of times I don't, I mean, I don't use a ton of facades just because a lot of the stuff is even easier than using facades now. Like the, the validation stuff, I just have, I just use the validation trait. Like I don't even use the facade anymore or like firing an event. I just use the helper function. And then the testing suite in Laravel has the nice expects events helper that lets me um, assert that I'm expecting certain events to be fired, um, which does all the mocking for me, even if I use the facade or helper function. Um, but yeah, I've, I've never worked on an application where facades were a problem. I guess if you're using like a hundred different facades in one file, that's going to be hard to test, but usually I find I'm using one or two facade calls. It's still easy to test. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the issue is. I had a discussion about this on Reddit too, a different thread. It's like the only Reddit discussion I've had in the last year. Cause every time I have one conversation, like the taste in my mouth is so bad. I just don't come back for six months later. Cause I hate it so much. People just don't have basic manners on that site. But anyways, I had a discussion about this. And here's the basic argument that I got from people who sound smart, but when you break it down, it's like, okay, that just doesn't mean anything. The argument is, okay, don't use ViewMake in your controller because when you come back to that controller in six months, you have no clue what dependencies it has. And you don't know that it needs the view factory, right? So if you were to instead get rid of that facade and inject the uh, Laravel's view factory class. Now you look at the, the constructor and you know exactly the dependencies and everything's just magically better. And the cost of doing that is so low, there's no reason you shouldn't do that. Then in your methods, you just say this views make, you know, just the traditional way. And so the, so the argument is it doesn't cost much to do that. So you should do it because it's naturally better. It decouples things, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. My contention is, and I, I even said this a little during my, my Laracon talk, is like, I think it does make a difference. So whether you're doing view colon colon make or just the view helper function, which is what I do, uh, I think that's significantly better than injecting the view factory into your controller creating the namespace, injecting it, assigning it, creating the property, then in the method saying this views make. I think that makes a difference. I think those things make a tremendous amount of difference, especially as they add up over the entire project. And then when you break it down, you have to be honest. Are you really getting anything out of this? This whole thing, like you, you just understand the dependencies and, and now it makes sense. In a controller, it doesn't matter. Um, and so, like Taylor said, this is this all comes down to facades are sort of like a sharp knife. Like, DHH says, right? We have to reference DHH. So, yeah, if you want to use 20 different facades in a class, uh, I can see how that could be an issue where it's true. You, you don't know what dependencies you have, and that can be dangerous. Be a smart developer. Use them wisely. Um, if you find that maybe you, your, your, your imports at the top of your, your class are getting long, that might mean you're missing something, right? 
um, that's all there is to it. I don't think you need to change completely how you use facades or just get rid of them completely because you're not capable of seeing when a class maybe has way too many responsibilities. Last time I uh, had the, the conversation about uh, or the, the controller should have all the dependencies injected was I was talking with Paul Jones and one other guy at ZenCon, and they said, you know, it's, hey, it's such a cheap cost to make, or ch- such a cheap change to make. Why don't you just make it? And I made some arguments about how uh, for the sake of uh, comprehensibility and simplicity, uh, there's I have different approaches to how I'm handling things in a con- in a in a controller versus maybe some service class where I want to be more explicit about its its dependencies and everything. But one of the foundational disagreements we had was: is a controller meant to be framework non-specific? And I wanted I made a statement, and I want you guys to either agree with me or disagree with me or devil's advocate me. I made a statement that I think that. Uh, controllers are inherently framework dependent and and not that they can never have any pieces of them that are moved. And one of the distinctions we made was, I think the people I was talking to were assuming that every framework ever is based on symphony, which they're not. Um, and they won't always be in the future either. Um, but they, you know, and they started talking about PSR seven and everything, but like in general, the controller, there's certain classes that I think of as being connected to the framework. And then there's like, you want to call it the domain, which is the PHP logic that's not necessarily connected to the framework. And I think of the controller as being something that is framework connected and, and something that's a, a illuminate command or job is going to be framework connected. And something that's an illuminate queue is going to be framework connected. And, you know, these pieces that are just tied into not just the, the high level domain of the application, but the actual routing to the front end and the actual passing of views around. I mean, that's, to me, that's kind of inherently frameworky, and they were kind of disagreeing with me and saying that's not inherently frameworky because, in theory, you can inject all those things and then just swap out of this and drop into that. and And I don't want to be too dismissive of the argument, but it, it, the the idea of I, and I've I've taken old crappy apps that are in Code Igniter or Cake PHP or Zen Framework One and had to migrate them to modern frameworks. I felt the pain of relying too heavily on the built-in you know magic of the framework before and wished that I had done that less. So I get that. But to me, the idea that in any of those circumstances, I could have just picked up a controller and changed a few dependencies or something like that, and then dropped it in a new framework seemed kind of crazy. Am I off on this? No. I, I, I just can't even entertain that thought because like... I, I, okay, first, their point that it's like a simple change to make. Yes, but I, do, I won't do it out of principle because to me, it's giving in to a certain superstition about coding that... This is going to be our main issue if we have to change frameworks or this is going to be the hard part is, oh, man, what about our view, the way we're returning our views? Like that's that's such a minuscule part of building a successful web application in terms of what view library you're using that like I wouldn't even entertain it because it just is showing like a lack of an ability to determine what is actually valuable and meaningful when building web applications and how you return your views is like next to last on that list. Like it's the absolute probably easiest thing to change. So to kind of go down that road of over abstracting at that level, like at the meaningless level, like what levels of abstraction are we going to be at when we're at the stuff that's actually important? Like it's sort of like if you give an inch take a mile kind of thing just i i just can't even go down that road because i just don't think it is that valuable in the long run and meaningful but yeah i mean to your point no i don't think it's reasonable to expect to be able to drop in your entire controller http layer into another framework one what if that framework is react php which is in a whole new paradigm so you're now you're on a non-blocking framework which doesn't even really make sense 
with the way you've you've written your entire application. So I think it's kind of silly, but it's also just sort of the easiest part of the application to change. So I don't really worry about it. Uh, I'm going to make a a really weird an, uh, analog that might make you people uncomfortable and we might cut this. I don't know. When I was younger, I grew up in a somewhat religious household and my parents were very intent on giving us the opportunity to explore the faith we grew up in and whatever else and to, to come to conclusions on our own when we were to come to conclusions. <laughs> exactly. Just... That's the problem. My curtains just totally <laughs> fell down from the window. I was trying to close the curtains. My wife put these up. She's in massive trouble. She failed. And now I have to deal with this. You can't even see my face. I can't. You're just glowing. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to start this one again and see if I can do it. So um, when I was younger, I grew up in a household where it was a, we were a religious household, um, but my parents were very intent on giving us the space to explore our faith on our own and make some decisions on our own when we came to adolescence and to figure out what we were really interested in. And one of the things that I, I was, you know, was connecting to is that there's a lot of religious traditions that have a much more kind of strict set of expectations. When you do this, you're doing the right thing and you're in, in God's good graces. When you do this, you're doing the wrong thing. You're not in God's good graces. And and the faith I grew up in was much much more relational and flexible. There's not like a maybe an easier set of rules that this is right and this is wrong. It was much more like kind of figuring it out as you go and all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't want to say like it was 100% that way, but I was being attracted in some ways and spaces to faiths that were more rigid because I was like, that way I'm going to, you know, they have more rules, therefore I'm going to know more. And my dad and I didn't have a ton of uh, faith-based conversations growing up, but one of the things that he said to me was like, if you're just going to rely on a set of rules, then you're always going to wonder if there were more rules that you need to be knowing. And maybe you didn't catch all the rules. Maybe there's some secret rules that you haven't gotten yet. And, and maybe, you know, and like, and just further and further and further and further until really you're just like expecting someone to tell you literally every decision you have to make. At some point, there's going to be some edge. No matter where you are, there's going to be some edge at which you're going to be given the ability to make decisions of your own. And you can't just say something's more right just because it has more rules. Right. Like there is some level at which you're going to have to make decisions and, and maybe you prefer more rules than somebody else. But in the end, like there's going to be a personal decision making process and there's going to be a maturity and there's going to be your own ability to make decisions. So that was really significant for me from a faith based perspective. And it's weird to make this connection, but it made it in my head. So I'm going to share it. It feels to me like the same thing here. I think it makes perfect sense. I, I think it's a really good example uh, with the faith aspect, this idea like some people might say or some groups might say, this is your ticket. If you do this and this and this and you don't do that and that and that, here's your ticket into heaven, right? Yeah. These yeah. are the steps you follow. And it's kind of like that in the code world, too, where it's like if you would just do this and you would you would follow this pattern and you would use design in the way that we say and you do this and this and this, then you get maintainable code, right? Yep. And, and the reality is like you don't know that, you know, Um yeah, I, I think it's a really good example. Cool. Well, thanks for bearing with me on that. Um, so we have so many more things to talk about, and we're way past time. So it's okay, because that means we've got a lot of topics for next next time. So, okay, real quick. Um, last thing for the day. Uh, what is your uh, favorite flavor of milkshake? Oh, what is the... Um, I've been doing this a lot. The 19... What's that 19... Malt. Malted... A malted milkshake that you get oh, like in an old diner. Gosh, that's so good. Oh yeah. my gosh. Gosh, I like a peanut butter. I'm a big peanut butter fan. I don't know if I've ever had a peanut butter milkshake. <laughs> There's this before. little diner in between, in the middle of nowhere, in between Little Rock and Hot Springs, Arkansas, that has uh, peanut butter milkshakes, and they're really good. Nice. The, it's actually my favorite milkshake comes from the. I think it's the oldest diner in the U.S. or something like that. It's somewhere in Jacksonville, St. Augustine area. 
and it's this tiny little place you can tell people were shorter when they built it like tall people we'd like you knock your head <laughs> it's that old and um and they have this i think they call it like orange dreamsicle or orange creamsicle or something like that and dude when you do like the orange cream style milkshake right like nothing's better than that oh my gosh it's so good all right well thanks guys it's was, it was great to talk to you and uh, take care yeah.